Well, good morning. Uh, before we get started with the message today, I do, I want to just take a second to remember uh, what yesterday was and uh, what we still remember. Yesterday was Veterans Day. And I just want to say something first. And what I'd like to do is I'd just like to say a quick thing about that. And then I'm actually going to ask when I finish saying that, if you are a veteran, I'd ask you to rise at the end. And we'd like to just pray over you. Okay? So I just think about Veterans Day in general, and three words came to my mind. We, we say these things about, like, freedom is not free. And I think about what it means to serve like that, the sacrifice that it takes, right? The first thing, that word, a sacrifice, right? That, that somebody would be willing to stand up for us and take that. It shows such a beautiful picture of the gospel, doesn't it? It's just such a parable of what Jesus has done for us, that we know freedom isn't free. If any place in the world can say freedom isn't free. It's the Christian church. It cost Jesus's life, right? And so veterans, thank you for being willing to sacrifice and show us what that looks like. Also courage. I think about what it takes to not know exactly what you're getting into, right? To stand up when there is fear. Like courage is not the absence of fear, but the willingness to step into that fear and act anyway. And so veterans, thank you for your courage shows what Jesus looked like when he saw the cross ahead of him, knew exactly what it would be, and walked right through it. For the joy set before him, he despised the shame of the cross, right? And then thirdly, faith. Like I said before, if you sign up for the military, you don't know exactly what you're getting into, and you're not your own anymore, are you? Right? You are molded and shaped by somebody else's will in that sense. And again, what a picture of the gospel and what it means to follow Jesus. He knew what he was doing, but when you sign up for it, right? Here I am, Lord. I don't know what you want. I don't know where you're going, but I'm going to go with you, right? And so veterans, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your courage. And thank you for giving us a parable of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Would you rise now so we could pray for you if you're a veteran in the room? Would you join me in praying for them? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the men and women standing in this room and all um, that they mean to us and all that they've done and all that they've been willing to show. Lord, thank you for their courage. Thank you for their willingness to sacrifice and thank you for showing us a parable of faith in them. Lord, their service is not free to them either and it causes a toll. So I pray that your comfort and your peace, Lord, you are the God of all comfort. And so would you comfort them and their families? Lord, I pray for anybody who's active and serving now as well. Lord, there are so many unknowns, um, but the one truth that's consistent is you. And so I thank you that we can follow you wherever you send us. Thank you for these men and women and the honorable thing that they have done in stepping up and being willing to sacrifice. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you. Uh, so, in today's passage, before we get there, I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine that there's a family getting ready to take a vacation. And the main thing they're looking at right now is they're trying to figure out where are they going to stay. They're trying to find a home. And so they want to go somewhere on the beach on our east side here on the Atlantic. And so they're looking at homes and they're looking online. They're trying to find the perfect home for a vacation. And so as they do, the main thing that we all do now is look at Google reviews and all the reviews of what people are saying, right? Because everybody else knows what we should think. And so as we do, we're looking for this homes. And all the reviews on this one home talk about this really peculiar piece. Like nothing you would really ever pick a vacation home for. 
But every review about this one home comments on this one window on the second floor that faces east. And everybody's writing about how at sunrise, the view in this room from this window is absolutely gorgeous. And so the family thinks it's a kind of a weird thing to rent a home for a window. But it's so peculiar and it's so constant that they're like, well, let's, let's just do it. Let's see what this window is all about, right? And so they decide to book this home. And so as they book this home, they wait a couple of weeks. And then the day finally comes. The kids get home from school. The parents get home from work. And they have dinner together at home, and they drive out to their vacation home. And so they get there, and it's late already. It's dark. And so they set their alarms for 50 minutes before the sunrise. Because they're going to get up. They don't want to miss it, right? And so they get to bed a little earlier than they would have typically went to bed. They get ready, and the morning comes, and they're all excited. They're groggy at first, but they get excited when they remember. And so the family gathers in this second-story room with this window facing east, and everybody sits on the floor and waits. And as the sky starts to brighten up a little bit, and as the sun starts to lift in the sky, everyone's jaws drop. Wow. Nobody wants to move. Nobody wants to ruin it, right? But all of a sudden, as everyone's amazed by this view, the dad, let's say, gets up to the window. He just like can't help himself. He starts going up to it like those bugs to those lights, right? And he gets up to it, and he just goes, wow. Guys, this was totally worth it. Look at this window. The glass is beautiful. The windowsill is perfect. Look, it fits right in. It's absolutely, this is the best window I've ever seen. He's totally missed the point, right? He's looking at the window when windows aren't meant to look at, they're meant to look through. And in today's passage, we're going to see a similar thing happen. And that's a silly, lighthearted example. But the reality is that many of us look right at what we should be seeing and miss it. And in Jesus' time, in John 5, the story that we're going to get into, you're going to see people who look right at what they need and totally miss it. In today's passage, Jesus is confronting them with it. And as we look at it, we need to be honest with ourselves. How's my vision? How's my perspective? How's my focus? Do I see the sunrise, or am I staring at the window? Before we really dig into today's passage, just a brief context from the last two weeks, because this is the final story in kind of a three-part thing. Um, In John 5, 1 through 19, Jesus goes to this place called Bethesda, and there's this pool. And all these people are waiting for healing. They think that there's this kind of superstitious belief that as an angel stirs the waters, if you're the first one in, you'll get healing. So all these people who are really desperate for healing are sitting by this pool just waiting for the right moment so they can jump in. And Jesus heals this man who's been waiting for 38 years. He looks at him and says, do you want to be healed? He says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And as the man walks and takes up his bed, he's done a big no-no in Jerusalem. He's lifted up his bed and carrying it, which is kind of like moving, and therefore he's broken Sabbath rules. There's these rules that they're not supposed to do certain things. And so the people who see this happen push on him a little bit about it. And he says, well, that's the man that healed me. Jesus did. And so Jesus gets accused for telling this man to break the Sabbath rules. And so in last week's passage, we saw Pastor Doug share with us about how Jesus starts answering. And if there's any time where Jesus could back off and explain it differently, right? If there's any time where if Jesus really wasn't who he said he is, he could back off, it's this passage. And what Pastor Doug said last week is he totally steps on the gas, 
right? They're offended because when they ask him about the Sabbath breaking rules, he says, okay, my father is working until now. Like Jews knew that God doesn't take a day off. God still sustains the universe because my father's working until now. And so I am working. And they go, oh, not only is he breaking the Sabbath, but he's calling himself equal with God. And he goes, you think that's bad? right? I am in absolute unity with God the Father. I am completely one with the Father. Everything the Father does, I do. I do nothing except what the Father does and what he gives me. And the very last claim he makes in that passage, he says, I'll tell you the truth. One day, the voice of the Son of God will raise everybody who's ever lived to give an account to him. Jesus will be the one who resurrects them and the one who judges them. So if they thought it was bad that he said he works on the Sabbath, he's gone full in. And so today, we're reading the passage that ends the scene. And I want you to kind of imagine this passage a little bit like a courtroom drama. So he's made these big claims. He's done these things, and he's said what it means. And now it comes the time for him to produce witnesses. And in Jewish law, they needed to establish charges by two or three witnesses. And so, in light of everything he said, now is the time. It's time for Jesus to produce some credible witnesses. And so, would you join with me in looking at John 5, and we're going to start in verse 30. God's Word says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus acknowledges that no human court is going to take the defendant's own word for it by itself. He's not saying he's not going to actually speak truth. He's just saying it's not going to be considered true. And so he's going to appeal to three main witnesses in the passage soon, but he actually starts with what I'm going to call witness zero. Witness zero is John the Baptist. He says, look, when John the Baptist was creating a stir by the Jordan, you guys sent leaders to him to ask him about what he was doing. And John pointed you to me. John was a witness to the truth. He was a lamp shining light on Jesus. Look, you were willing to rejoice for a while in what John was doing and what John was saying. And so Jesus kind of saying, look, you should have continued to follow John. You should have went all the way to where his finger was pointing. Because when John saw Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When he talks about Jesus later, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. John got it, and he's trying to shove everybody off to Jesus, and they're not willing to follow. And Jesus' appeal to John here is really interesting because he says, I have a greater witness than John. But he starts with John. Why? Jesus is appealing to them on the basis of a witness that they've already agreed with. He's being extremely kind to them. He even says it, right? He says, look, the reason I'm doing this is because I'm seeking to save you. You believe John. You listen to him. Look, think about what he was doing. So even though they've put him on trial, he's willing to seek and save the lost. But sadly, 
It's not their response. They're only willing to follow John's pointing finger so far and only willing to rejoice in John's light for a while, not forever. And so instead, Jesus moves on to reveal his greater witnesses. And there are three. Picking up in verse 36, it says this. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus right here is called three witnesses to the stand. They're a pretty impressive set of three witnesses. First, he says the works. Now look at the text. He says works. He doesn't say signs. He doesn't say miracles. He says works. So let's think about for a second. We're in John 5. So what has Jesus done so far? I'm not going to say everything, but let's just think of some things. And he's saying they bear witness about me. So what are they telling us? Well, Jesus' first sign, a miracle, right? Which is included in the works. Is he turned water to wine at this wedding feast. Right? He comes as the Lord of the feast. It seems like it's such a little thing, right? For him to change water to wine so some guy doesn't get embarrassed by not having enough. The wedding ends two days instead of three days. It seems like not a good point, right? But remember what Jesus said when his mother asked him to do it? He says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus, thinking about his own wedding feast, when he would join his bride, knows that he's got to make blood for that feast too. And he goes, it's not time for that yet. But before he does it, think about what Jesus does. He makes wine for a feast, for a celebration. He's the Lord of celebration. He's the one who brings in this kingdom that's going to re bring rejoicing with it. He cleanses the temple in John. He goes in and he goes, look, I am here to restore true worship. He reveals himself to a woman by a well at Samaria with a very shady past. The first person he tells that he's the Messiah, the chosen one. And the town around her, many of them come to faith in him too. What is he saying? I'm the Lord of the feast. I'm the one restoring true worship. And I'm the savior for the whole world. He heals an official son long distance just by speaking. He heals the man of the pool of Bethesda who's been waiting 38 years for what it takes Jesus Nothing to do. What's he telling us? I am the Lord of the feast. I am the Lord who brings true worship. I am the Lord who is the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, who makes right worship everywhere on the world. You will worship not on this mountain, but that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. And my kingdom will look like this. There, will, there won't be any more sick children. There won't be any more people waiting by a pool for 38 years. I'm going to bring a world that's restored and renewed and new. This is who Jesus is. He says, look at the works I'm doing. And time out, we're in John 5. we got a ways to go. He's going to do some more stuff. He doesn't just mean the works I've already done. He says that I am doing. 
Their works aren't over. And where are they going? They're all heading to the cross and the empty tomb. What does Jesus say hanging there before he gives up his life? Speaking about his works, that he came to accomplish redemption. What does he say? It is finished. Each of the events recorded in Jesus' life open us up more and more to who he is. He's the son that the father sent to save the world. His second witness is the father who sent him. And this is not surprising if you were here last week. The number of times that he said things about his unity with the father and that the father is witness and everything he's doing is from the father. Uh, it's not surprising. What might be surprising in this passage is what he says about the Jews. What does he say? He says, you have never heard God's voice. You have never seen God's form. Now, there's lots of things he's pointing back to, right? At Mount Sinai, Moses got to go talk with God, right? They didn't get to see a form of God. They saw smoke on the mountain and fire, and they heard his voice out there. But these people didn't, right? Why does he point this out? Their hope is in their identity as God's people, and they haven't even heard his voice. And here, think about this, Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God stands right in front of their face and says, you've not seen God or heard his voice. That's ironic. He's standing right in front of them. He says, you don't believe in me. If you had the word of God in you, you would receive me. But here I stand and here I speak. And here you are, blind and deaf. They can't see what's right in front of them. And then he points to his third witness, and it's the scriptures. He says, you're diligently studying the scriptures. You're searching for eternal life. But when I stand in front of you, you don't recognize what they're for. Not only do you not recognize me, look what they do. They take the scriptures, which are supposed to point them to Jesus, and they use those to attack him. You've not followed these. To the word of God. Right, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and later we see the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's Word, they're using the Word of God, the Scriptures, searching so hard and using it against Jesus? How can they be so blind? They're supposed to come to him for life, but instead they're seeking his death. How can they stare at the windows so long? The Bible is an amazing window. You couldn't write a book as amazing as this with all the chat GBTs and all the stuff, right? You could never make this. And yet, it is a window. They thought eternal life was in it itself, that the, that the book gave them eternal life. It's Jesus who gives us eternal life. And they totally miss him. There is a way to know the Bible and not know the Christ of who it speaks. Actually, there are many ways. And there are many ways that may or may not be as related to us in here, but there's one I want to focus on, and it's what I'm going to call the handbook method. And I think we are more tempted to do this than we want to believe. Look, we live in this culture where it seems like everything is shifting from a post to a post-post to a post-post-post Christian culture. And everything around us is swirling and changing, and nobody knows who anything is and what anything is. And because of that, what we are tempted to do is to use this as more of a handbook for all the Christian answers. 
but totally miss the Christ. As we, as we start to engage slowly with the Bible and find the answers to the problems, we go about trying to figure out all the right answers and who we should side with and what cultural moment we should be a part of or not and all these things, and easily we can lose our first love. Now hear me carefully. Am I saying the scriptures don't give us guidelines and help us think about culture? Absolutely not. They absolutely do. You should, like, what other authority do you have? But... There is a danger to worshipless engagement with God's word. There is a way to come at it, again, seeking the Christian answers, but none of the Christ. We can figure out how to best follow the Sabbath. We can figure out which agendas to support or reject. We can decide who's right and who's wrong. But in the end of it, what if we were to stand before Jesus and say something like this? Didn't we teach the Bible at our Christian schools in your name? Lord, didn't we go to our small groups and look at the Bible together in your name? Didn't we heal social problems in your name? Didn't we side with the right side of the argument in your name? And Jesus will say to us if we come to him like that, get away from me, I never knew you. There's a way to know what the Bible says and miss him. The good news is that it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. It's actually better, right? From our love for Christ, from our devotion to him, then we look at his word and go, what are you saying to us? What are we supposed to think about this, Jesus? Help me see what I'm supposed to see when these kids don't know who they are. Help me see what I'm supposed to see when these things are helping, happening around me. It's both and, right? But it's got to start from knowing him. We need to remember that Jesus is revealing himself in the scriptures so that we may believe and have life in his name. They're here to point us to Jesus Christ, the only way to the Father, the only way to salvation. There is eternal life in no one else but Jesus himself. Salvation isn't found in meeting some arbitrary standard or escaping the wrath of God by finding a loophole. It's not known in knowing all the rules. Instead, all those things are just staring at a window. So maybe now you're convinced that the witness of the works and the witness of the Father and the witness of the scriptures all point to Christ. Maybe now you believe me that there is a danger in looking at those things like a window. But the question that still remains for the text for me is, but just why don't they see it? What is it that's motivating them to miss what's right in front of them? They're not dumb right? They know like how to read. They know how to think. They know how to like really engage. They're very tricky with how they use it. Why don't they see it? In the next section in verse 41, I think we, we get our answer. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here is the problem under the problem. Why have they been able to study the scriptures and devote their whole lives to it and miss the Messiah standing in front of them? Why aren't they coming to him for eternal life? It's emptiness. It's an emptiness that leads to the only 
second best option, which is glory from one another. He says, you don't have the love of God within you. And so you seek to be glorified by each other. They're so empty that rather than going to God to be filled, they seek to be filled by one another, but it doesn't work. Yes, we ought to build one another up. This is a really encouraging church to be a part of. The words we speak to each other really matter, and that happens all around us. But here, it's done in a way that they can just get it returned. That's why they're doing it. They're receiving glory back and forth from one another. They're wanting to be puffed up, so they puff each other up. And here's why it's a really big problem. Because it doesn't take very long for a kid, I'm a teacher, by the way, to school, you see it all the time with students, and they get better and better at it. And as adults, we're not really free from it either. We realize if we want glory from one another, we have a really big problem. The problem is who we actually are. Right? If we want glory from one another, what I'm going to start doing is learning how to hide all the pieces of me that I know you don't like. And I'm going to choose to only give you a curated version of myself. This is not just a social media problem. It happens in the hallways of all the schools we grew up in, doesn't it? You learn to choose to like things you don't even like. I grew up in Canada. I remember crying that people were making fun of me for not playing hockey because I played baseball. And so I started acting like I liked hockey better. It's so foolish, right? But when we learn to hide all these ugly bits, we're always worried that someone's going to figure out who we really are. We seek glory from one another, but we're afraid if they knew the real us, they wouldn't be so impressed. So we get really good at hiding. We give certain parts of ourselves to each other, but nobody knows the full us. And the problem is, is it's a moving target, right? Does having perfect glowing skin on TikTok make you impressive? Then go through your skin regimen and show all people how amazing it is and get your ring light and all these things. Is authenticity the thing today? Okay, my room's really dirty back here. Check it out. Like, I wanted to clean it, but I know you'd think more of me if I didn't. It just changes all over the place, right? It's so hard and it's so exhausting because we construct these reputations that are based on what you think. And holding that up only lasts for so long. So why, why would we want it? And verse 42 shows us why. Because we're lacking something, right? He says here in 42, let me read it again. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He goes, look, I know you. I know why you reject me. You don't have the love of God inside yourself. So what's the antidote to this venom? What's the antidote that works to heal us from glory seeking from one another? What's the antidote that keeps us from hiding ourselves anymore? It's to have the love of God within you. But especially to remember what you were like when it came. The Bible is very clear about our antidote in Romans 5. Let's look there together. Romans 5, 6 through 11. This is such good news. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember the works of Jesus. Did he wait for you to get cleaned up? Did he wait for you to figure it all out? Did he wait for you to follow the law first? Look at the words in this passage, right? Weak, ungodly. So somebody might die for a righteous person, so unrighteous. Sinners, that's when he came. What's the antidote to seeking glory from one another? To know who you are because of what Jesus has done for you. You know the good news? He knew the ugly bits before he did it. All that stuff you hide from one another, all that stuff you hide and keep to yourself, he knew those things when he came. And so look how it continues. Such good news. He says, For since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, like given peace by the death of of the, his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is not a moving target. If he saved you when he knew all the ugly bits, he's not going to change his mind when you don't follow him perfectly. Hear that. That's who you are. That's who we are, right? You are not going to be forsaken by him. He knew exactly who you were the whole time. Much more will he save us. And when it says that, it means from the wrath to come, that time when his voice lifts all the dead and we stand before his face. You have nothing to fear if your faith is in Christ. He says, much more than that, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's not just that he knew you when you were, had all those bits. It's not just that he's not going to turn from you. You get to rejoice in who God has made you. That's the gospel. Jesus came and died for you. He bore all your sins. He bore the things that you hide from everybody else. He bore the things they see. He bore all the sins that you will ever do, and he died for you. And now you stand completely confident in Christ. So stand. When you have the love of God in Christ, your, your desire for the glory of other people can just fade away. Now, just to let you know, it returns every once in a while, right? We forget. And so what do we do? We go back to the well and drink deeply. Remember again who you are. That's why I, I love this uh, teach at this Christian school, and we have chapel, and one time a student was complaining, we hear the same story. It's always about the gospel. Good! I got nothing else, right? That's amazing news. I love it. I'm like, they get it, right? Remember who you are. Remember what Christ has done for you when he did it, and be satisfied in him. Turn back to him when you forget. In the last verse of our passage, the last verses, sorry, our courtroom takes one last dramatic turn. Look at verse 45 of John 5. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Like these Jewish people have already, already decided where their hope is. Their hope is on Moses. And they believe that so firmly that they're willing to stand there and accuse Jesus. They aggressively hold on to Moses as their hope, their understanding of the law, their understanding of the scriptures. But this is where the courtroom picture takes an absolutely astounding turn. Imagine them in this courtroom and accusing Jesus and the back door is open. And who walks in with a beard, right? Moses. And as he walks in, the look of smugness on Jesus' accuser's face grows. Now Jesus is really going to get it. We couldn't trap him in it. We couldn't say it. He's smarter than us. But surely Moses will come to our side. Do you see their faces? Except Moses walks right past them. And to their absolute surprise and their total dismay, Moses embraces Jesus and turns his face against them. In fact, the whole room has turned against them. And Jesus has gone from the seat of the accused. He picks up the gavel and he sits to make judgment. And now the accusers have become the accused. He orders them to the place of the defendant. Now they're on trial. And who's the prosecuting attorney? Moses. Now, I might be getting a little bit away with my imagination, but I can just imagine this courtroom, right? What's the prosecution look like? What questions does he ask? Maybe something like this. If you didn't know, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? So let's think about those books. Moses stands up and says, listen, you believe in me. Okay. Do you remember in Genesis 3.15, when I wrote down that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman would bruise the serpent's head? Do you remember when I said his heel would be bruised? How do you not see the serpent crusher standing in front of you? If you really believe me, you'd see him. Or Genesis 12, 3, when Abraham is promised that in him, there will be someone who will come, an offspring who will bless all the families of the earth. When I wrote that, how do you not see that Jesus is the savior for the world? Remember the Samaritan woman? Or the Passover lamb. And John the Baptist says, the lamb of God. How do you not get that that's this man? Or in Deuteronomy 18, when Moses says, there will be a prophet that will come one day from you like me. You need to listen to him. When he speaks, all judgment will be based on whether you listen to him or not. Behold the prophet. They thought that they had believed in Moses, but they didn't. Because they didn't see Christ in the scriptures. And so when he came, no thank you. They have put all of their hope in Moses, but they don't even truly believe what he wrote. In the works of Christ, in the witness of the Father, in the scriptures themselves, they just saw the glass of the window. And so the very one they hoped would bring them salvation, that they could depend on, turned out to reveal to them just how much they've misunderstood. What about you? Are you sick and tired of chasing the glory of others? Are you exhausted? Believe in the one who came to die for you. Have you relied on something other than Jesus? 
that will turn out to accuse you in the end? Francis Schaeffer was this pastor and theologian, and he has this illustration where he says, if all God ever judged anybody on was, let's just imagine every baby born is born with a tape recorder. This is back in the day, so it's a microphone and MP3 or whatever. He says, if it recorded every time, just picked up and the light turned on, every time it said, people should do this, whatever it is. He just, whenever you make a moral judgment on anybody else, if that's the only thing, you just, I'm a pretty good person, and they should be doing this, and I would do this if I were them. Francis Schaeffer said, if that's all God ever used to judge you, which it's not, but if it was, we would all stand guilty. We don't even uphold our own laws, right? We all look at people and say they should do this, but we don't do the same thing. Whatever you're holding on to, if it's not Christ, it will turn on you in the end. But Christ will never turn on you. He says he will never forsake you. He will never leave you. He will always stand at your side. So, are you seeing the sunrise? If you are, there's three things I think this passage requires of us. One, if we want to embrace Jesus, we need to believe that he was sent by the Father and receive him. The witnesses to Jesus all verify his credibility. He was sent to save the world, not condemn it. He lived a perfectly righteous life on your behalf to redeem and restore all things lost at the fall. Believe that, but know that that's just not something outside you. He came on your behalf. He came to act in your place and to save you. Don't just know what happened somewhere out there sometime back then. Receive the fact that it happened for you today. Number two, come to Jesus for eternal life through constant repentance and faith. And keep coming to him. The good news is that Jesus, this news, sorry, it demands a response. To believe and to receive the facts about the story are good, but Jesus is calling you to himself because he wants to give you eternal life. So turn away from being after anything else. Turn away from seeking to be saved by your knowledge of right and wrong your personal understanding of the Bible and how much more impressive it might be than somebody else's, how much more you understand than they do, and come to Jesus himself. If you've never repented of your sin and you've never trusted in him, come to him. He will not accuse you. He came to save you. If you've come to him but you're seeing ways in which you've started to shift focus, if you call yourself a believer, you say, I'm following Jesus, I just... In what you said, I'm just seeing some places that I'm not really holding on to him. Then come to him humbly. When you realize very often you miss the main point, when you realize, as we all do, that we often looked at the window, come back to him. He, remember, he knew the ugly bits before he saved you. And when you feel like you should know better, when you feel like you've come and been saved, but you've turned back towards the glory of others, come back to him and repent. Come back to him in humility. Come back to him in faith and drink deeply from the well of his grace. And third and finally, set all your hope on him. Like the people in this passage has set their hope in Moses in a decisive way, place all of your hopes on Christ. There is no other way to salvation. There is no other hope. And so today, as we think about this, What's your response? What do you need to do today? What do you need to pray today? How do you need to think about this? How can you see the sunrise? Would you pray with me?